And welcome to Professor Labs podcast. My name, of course, is Professor Labs, and I am joined today by Ariha Batul, who's a former student of mine. And very generously, when I was looking for students to come on, former students to interview for uh, some new content, and I think this is going to be some really interesting content, uh, she agreed very kindly to come on. So I want to thank you for joining me today because. When you responded and you told me a little bit about what you do and some of your experiences, I thought, wow, this sounds really interesting. And I think a lot of people would be really interested to hear more about this. So, uh, yeah, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I'm doing really well. Excited to be here and have a have a good conversation, learn a little bit more about each other. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, let's just let's just dive right in. So you yeah. took my class we were saying right before we started recording, uh, geez, I think it was five, six years ago now, maybe. And it I seems like, the, yeah, it seems as if the <laughs> world has changed much oh, long, yeah. many more years than that now, just because of COVID and everything. And that probably leads right into sort of what I was initially interested in, which is sort of uh, some of the work that you, you do now. And so I was wondering if maybe we could start just with that a little bit of what exactly... Um, is the work that you do and, you know, what is uh, particularly interesting or, or meaningful about that work to you? Yeah. So when I was an undergrad and taking your class, I was definitely on like a very pre-medical track, wanted to go to medical school. Um, and how I stumbled into what I do now was completely by happenstance. It was not planned at all. Uh, but basically, I am a scientist at a company that uses AI and digital pathology to try to automate the field of pathology overall. Um, so we are training daily different algorithms to automate the task of, you know, cell counting or detecting specific tumor markers or any sort of thing um, like that. And so we just have the software to do that. And so either I will teach people how to use that software and do that themselves. So whether that be researchers or different academics um, or pathologists themselves, or we will create models that then we deploy into hospitals um, so that they can use our technology and really speed up their process and that, you know, lowers caseload and makes things a lot more efficient and quicker and blah, blah, blah. Wow. So that yeah. al already brings up so many interesting <laughs> yeah. questions. Uh, that is fascinating, as I was saying. I mean, first of all, from an experiential standpoint, that's something that I talk all the time about in my my writing class. You obviously took a uh, freshman writing comp with me, which is such a weird class, especially at a STEM school, which you went to, because so many students have all these preconceived notions, dare I say, even stigmas about writing and communication. Oh, yeah. But so many of them, my, my point being, they go into, I think, college in general, especially a STEM school and a writing class, very sort of narrowly focused. They go in, especially pre-med students with... Um, this end goal of I'm going to be this type of doctor. Yeah. I'm going to end up with this type of job. And there's lots of factors that I think sort of drive that impetus. But one of the things I tell them is that there are so many extensions within or connecting to medical fields that, I mean, some of which don't even exist yet. I mean, something like what you're doing now, I would imagine five, six years ago, maybe didn't even yeah. exist, uh, certainly not in the iteration that it does now. And that's what's sort of cool. That applies, I think, to a lot of other fields too, such as computer science and uh, I mean, really everything, but especially these technical fields, STEM-related fields. So it's really interesting to hear because I tell them oftentimes that that's a great, I think, sort of 
benefit of college and university that's sort of underrated is sort of via just exploration of different topics, different areas, networking, internship opportunities. You find these other sort of opportunities or just fields in general that you had no idea of, and they're quite plentiful and they're quite fruitful in terms of the the opportunities given. Uh, so was that sort of your experience in finding or navigating the pathway to what you ultimately here are doing now, or was it a little different? Like, how did that all sort of manifest over the course of um, your academic career and or beyond your academic career? Yeah, so I actually got into the digital pathology world while I was in undergrad. So I found an on-campus job. Uh, funny story, actually. I uh, It was after my like bio 202 final that I knew I just did so terrible on. And I was like Googling, <laughs> like how to get into medical school with like... <laughs> Uh, like low GPA or whatever I was Googling, something like that. Um, That's a common yeah. <laughs> experience at our school. Oh, yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so Googling around and one of the things was, oh, apply for an on-campus job or get an internship or something related or do some research. And so, you know, I went on to like our campus, uh, our school's job portal and found this job that it was initially just for like an undergrad researcher. Um, and then it just blossomed into so much more because I think I just had a general interest. And also I had a really good manager slash mentor who kind of took me under her wing and just showed me a lot of different things and like really allowed me to proliferate out of the confines of what my actual job was. Um, and so I discovered this really there. And then when I went to grad school, I kind of stopped working and that's when the pandemic happened also. Um, but then I just happened to find a pharmaceutical company nearby who was kind of doing similar things. And I was using the software uh, that I work for now, the company I work for now, um, at that job. And so that's kind of what segued me into like full throttle into this world. And um, yeah, like to your point, especially with people that are pre-med, there's so many ways to be in medicine and uh be in healthcare aside from just going to medical school or PA school or whatever that may be. And I think like we really fail to realize that sometimes, but I'm so glad <laughs> this is the path I went down and like, you know, it really saved me some time and definitely some money. Um, and yeah, I, I'm super happy. Oh, I can't wait to share this all with my freshmen. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna be they're gonna be blown away because this is the experience that many of them will have. Yes. I, I mean I see it every semester, uh, even every like in semester where they start out, as I said, sometimes it's fall semester, it's their first class they're taking and they're on this very narrow track. And then by the end of the semester, they're in the zone of I this I can't do this. This isn't for me. Oh, yeah. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. Or they realize that, you know, maybe later on. So th that's so interesting to hear because I, I always say that that, you know, I, I mean, of course, there are plenty of people who do stick with it. But just the idea that there are these extensions and options out there, I think, is so relevant and, and valuable for uh, especially younger students to hear. Uh, yeah, certainly. yeah, 100 percent. I mean, at the time, this field of digital path and AI being a part of it didn't really even exist. And one of the programs at our school uh, at the time was one of like the only programs that did something like this. Um, and it was super proprietary at the time. There wasn't much on it. And now, you know, a couple of years later, several years later, um, it's a pretty up and coming industry, still quite small and quite niche, um, but definitely very up and coming. And uh, actually, I don't know if I'm allowed to share this, but we just launched with, um, you know, uh, the best hospital in the world. So I'll let you put that together. Um, and <laughs> sure. uh, yeah, so it really seems like things are 
heading into that direction of this really being adapted overall and into clinical practice for pathologists in general. Yeah, so that raises actually a really interesting further consideration too, because um, really, I think it's, I've only felt this in the past, I would say, semester, maybe two semesters. Yeah, probably full academic year now. This sort of overwhelming, looming sense of AI <laughs> that's yeah. going to destroy us all, which I've had that sense since watching, you know, I saw Terminator 2 when I yeah. was nine years old. So I've been on that train for, <laughs> yeah. for many years now. But it, I mean, I can give you a little bit behind the scenes. And I know, I, I don't know how, I, I think it's becoming ubiquitous in the writing world and higher yeah. ed. Uh, in academia, this sort of sense of, well, we need to get a handle on the abilities of AI in terms of uh, writing generation. Yeah. And certainly at, at our university and talking to other instructors internally, it's something that they're very, they're trying to be very proactive with. I, it's good to see at our university, um, at least those I've talked to and worked with, they seem to be taking, again, like I said, a very proactive approach. Uh, more along the lines of, well, how can we utilize these tools in responsible ways and effective ways? That was something last semester talking to some professors where they were straight up using chat GPT in their classes in order to analyze its efficacy, talk about what it does well, what it doesn't do well in relation to then what we yeah. can do, you know, with our own writing and communication moving forward. Whereas there's also the prohibitive approach, which is just, well, we need to just stop this in its tracks. But then yeah. it's sort of this game of, well, students are going to find their students who want to be malfeasant are going to find their ways to potentially do that. How do you plagiarize uh, plagiarism check all of that? Um, so there's a lot that goes into that where it, it is sort of a very palpable feel right yes. now in academia or higher education that, oh, what if this just makes writing obsolete? Which I, I don't think so, because from my perspective, it's sort of like, well, you could forever just have a friend write a paper for you. This is just basically a freeware version of that. It's a more effective or streamlined version of that. So I think it it does affect sort of um, how we have to approach teaching writing and how we have to generate writing within the classrooms. But I don't think it's as as apocalyptic as sometimes you see it being written about in the media. I just think with some of the antiquated, outdated models of how writing and communication is taught, it does sort of force that issue of you need to adapt and sort of change your your models of, of teaching. So I'm just wondering from your perspective, how do you feel about um, the role of AI? Because obviously yeah. you work very closely and directly with it. Does, that, does any of that resonate with you or uh, similarly or differently? Or how do you feel about all of that? I think there is a lot of fear mongering around AI in general. And I think, like you said, like there are these apocalyptic ideas of it, but I think it is something that's going to facilitate and help us um, in the long run if used correctly and responsibly versus hurt us. Um, and I think that's exactly it where that responsible part um, gets lost a little bit because, you know, when, like you said, for writing, um, I think it is sort of diminishing that ability to like, Think creatively in those instances, for example. Um, but then, you know, with what I do, like it's a, a huge help because obviously we're literally helping save more lives. So, you know, definitely right. pros and cons. But in general, I think the narrative of like AI is going to take us all down is a little severe. And I don't think we're there quite yet. <laughs> Maybe one day, but not yet. <laughs> well, that's the yes. key word, right? Uh, or key phrase, yes. quite yet. Yeah. 
Well, I, I sometimes, and again, like I was saying, it sort of forces the issue of the fact that when you teach, for example, a rhetorical analysis paper or an academic research paper, it's not like those are fully transferable products, yeah. right? You're not going to sit around on a Saturday night and tell your friends, geez, you know, I would love to go out to the movies, but I read this article and I really got to write yeah. <laughs> this rhetorical analysis paper, right? It's more so about the the critical thinking skills, the assessment skills, the organization and planning skills that you have. It sort of forces you to to consider all of that. That's sort of the point of those those papers. And obviously, there are more directly transferable skills in terms of assessing, you know, relevant, valid research with different situations in mind, uh, you know, sort of that ability to discern um, all of that. And it's like, yeah, AI, you know, ideally should help us to, to sort of elevate our abilities with all of that, I think, too, um, which is, is sort of what I think of as well. I, I sort of try to look at it in, in more of the positive light because it, it does worry me as a as a fiction writer, oh, too, because yeah. I do write short fiction. And you've seen this with AI generated art that they're oh, winning yes. competitions now. They can beat any chess master. They're starting to write scripts, screenplays, uh, AI generated screenplays. And it's like, well, just have them do that. But my sort of argument is, well, you know, I could make a robot that could kill any football player on a football field, but we don't know exactly, that, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, but you, you would know. you would hope so. that you know, like AI ethics are taken seriously. That is also something that's very yes. up and coming right now, and I don't think we have enough of. Right. Um, and is definitely needed more. And then I think there's also, unfortunately, the conversation of value. So, is it valuable to use AI for healthcare, and is it Maybe we don't care so much about, you know, implementing ethics when, you know, that there's writing involved or when there's creative writing happening. Um, and I think hopefully the decision makers have a good have a good handle on things and like are, you know, valuing things equally and correctly, because um, I, I, I can see it becoming, you know, something to be concerned about, especially with writing. I mean, I think it's not even at the college level. I think it's really concerning for like younger kids. So I have a sister who's in middle school right now and she's telling me that like everybody's using ChatGPT for everything. And when you're at yeah. that age and you're like trying to develop these skills, I just, you know, it, there is a part of me that's a little bit concerned as to how open access all of this is and how easily it is to use. Um, but, you know, you just, mm -hmm. you just have to hope that the right people in charge, whether that be parents or, you know, decision makers or whoever is doing their due diligence and making sure that, you know, they're intervening. Yeah. And sort of, it's interesting because I feel as if AI is sort of, it's sort of doing what any big shift does. I, I sort of felt this way with COVID where the way I described the effects of COVID is that yeah, you can point to very specific things that were happening and changing as a direct result of COVID, but so much of like the larger societal shifts from COVID, it's not like those problems didn't exist before. COVID yeah. sort of forced the issue on them, right? Yeah. People absolutely. not being happy with their jobs or where they lived. And, you know, obviously it's it's much more complicated than just summarizing it that way. But that's sort of, I think, largely how you can you can think about something like that. And I sort of feel that way with AI, as you're saying, with writing, where especially at younger levels, developmental levels. And like I was saying, you know, the whole idea is to develop these skills. It's to train your mind. Well, if you're not seeing the efficacy of that behind the scenes work for all sorts of reasons, um, you know, I always, because I'm an advocate for smaller class sizes, I always point to that because most larger class size arguments I hear, it's just an administrative one to save money. Like I don't, I just don't buy yeah. any of yeah. those arguments. Um, 
there are probably narrow cases where, yeah, it does make sense and it's better from a practical institutional standpoint, cost effectively to save money with bigger classes. But largely speaking, I'm like, well, yeah, if, if you have strained instructors and, and resources to really focus on the efficacy of these skills, you're going to have people not you know, as engaged and they look to an easy out, they look to an easy alternative. Well, I was graded on this and I got to see my friend use chat GPT and got a, a B plus or an A. Why well, be crazy not to do that, right? What about the flip side though? Because I'm seeing a lot of posts online that are saying that now teachers and professors are using chat GPT to grade things and they're not, <laughs> students oh, are like not getting Oh, like instructor feedback? feedback. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. What's your take on that? <laughs> that's, that's I, you know, I, I heard that professors were using chat GPT. I mean, like I said, I, I knew that they were using it in class, but I didn't hear to use it as like an assessment tool. Um you know, in some ways, that's really interesting because it sort of makes sense in some circumstances. Like if you're grading a, um, I don't know what you would call it, a, a bubble exam, you know, the A through D, mm -hmm. like just Scantron, question, yeah. Scantron exam. It's like that was always uh, that was as automated as, as soon as it could be. So it's like, yeah, th that's obviously much different than giving qualitative feedback. Right. That would be more so quantitative feedback because it's you scored this yes. many points based on correct or incorrect assessment um, analysis. But yeah, qualitative feedback, which would be more what I do usually. Um, you know, reading a paper saying this is maybe effective, not so effective for these reasons that it's interesting because that, yeah, I think obviously you wouldn't want to automate. Um, but there are certain things you could maybe, right. You could automate grammar or, yes. um, formatting, you, you know, technical formatting, which uh, has already existed. Like we have Grammarly yeah. and stuff, right. So that's already a thing. Um, right. But the example that I was I was kind of thinking of was um, somebody had submitted a paper and the feedback that they had gotten was like, oh, like something about like your use of subheadings and headings and blah, blah, blah. And the person was like, I didn't have any headings. Exactly. That's that's automated responses. For <laughs> yeah, where exactly. It's like that's not exactly what that is in reference to because yes. it just doesn't know really. Um, Which, yeah, that's that's so, so interesting. I was just going to say, going. sorry, um, it. It's interesting, though, that that almost brings a level of comfort to hear that the AI is messing up and like getting things wrong, because mm -hmm. then that makes you feel like, OK, like, <laughs> unfortunately, um, I hate that we have this mentality, or at least I have this mentality. But it's like, OK, the humans are still like on top. You know, the AI is <laughs> not as good as us. Yeah. Like they're we're still OK. You know, we're not at that apocalyptic stage yet because there are yeah. some lawsuits that I'm aware of that are going on right now where like ChatGPT has led to defamation of some people and like sure, yeah. a lot of things are going on with that too. So yeah, I think it's all a little bit a buzz. <laughs> well, it's interesting or sort of ironic too, because as you were explaining this, I mean, people do bad things for all sorts of reasons. I, I think it's sort of a fallacy to say, for example, oh, people are only ever motivated by money. It's like, yeah. as an example, uh, that's usually a prime <laughs> example, yes. but there's lots of other reasons why people might you know, do something not so great um, as well. Or there's multiple reasons, right? They converge. And so thinking about what we were saying with kids sort of being stressed and not understanding the reason for, for something going to an automation like chat GBT, it sort of makes me think of instructors and the fact that there are so many instructors who are just really trying to get by. I mean, there yeah. are certainly uh, grade school teachers who 
don't make a ton of money. There are certainly um, higher ed teachers, adjuncts who are just teaching classes just straight up to pay their bills, to make yeah. their rent. And they might teach some classes that they, they love, but they, you know, everybody only has so much bandwidth. So I could see in those circumstances or in certain circumstances where it's like, well, if I automate this, I can teach another class, right? Yes. And I can finally have a, a peace of mind and assurance with, uh, you know, sort of my own well-being, uh, essentially. So obviously as well, there could just be lazy professors too yes, who are doing yeah. it because they just, they don't, they don't really care about teaching. They think of themselves as researchers. So there's lots of other reasons that I could see why that would certainly be be an issue of, of interest. And it's hard to sort of pin down, well, is it more usually one thing than the other? It's probably, again, a lot of different reasons, but which ones are sort of the prime reasons is, is sort of, I think, interesting moving forward to think about. But again, it exposes some of these issues that are already there, yeah. like we were saying with something like COVID. So that's really interesting to think about as well. And um, to, to think of those two things like in context of each other. So I think the timing of ChatGBT coming out now is very opportune because I think it's almost benefiting off of a lot of the realizations that people have had post COVID. So for me, at least, I think one of the biggest takeaways from COVID was life is short. I need to live life while I can. And you don't know how much time you have. And I Why think, everybody quit their job. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so now that we have this automation tool that's allowing you to have more time to do things that you want, um, it's hard to make an argument against it. And especially for kids, when that's kind of all they've known. Uh, so for my sister, she was in fifth grade uh, when COVID happened. And for her, actually, there were no Zoom classes at all. So she had a whole year of literally no education. So now she's back in school in eighth grade and, you know, taking her regents and blah, blah, blah. But that instruction wasn't even there for her. So why wouldn't she, you know, use something like this? Why wouldn't her peers use right. something like this? So it's hard. It's hard to make the argument against it. Right. Yeah, it's it's and it, like I said, it's so something that sort of I mean, I had heard of it before, but it really all of a sudden within the last yeah. academic year, just total, uh, I, I, for lack of a better term, freak out where everybody's talking about it all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's interesting. But anyways, enough doom and gloom. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which, again, I don't think is all doom and gloom, but it, this is great to hear from your perspective, too, for these reasons. Um, but I, I was also curious along those lines of, as we were saying along the way, writing and communication skills and how they apply to your professional work, you know, your, your work that you do now. Um, so I'm, I'm just sort of curious about any insights along those lines, because it is obviously very technical work. Um, anything in the, the medical field. Um, I, I always talk about, I, I know doctors and they tell me that, well, you know, different types of communication are still so valuable in, yeah. in the medical field. And that's not something that everybody initially thinks. So I'm just curious along those lines, um, what types of writing and or communication skills do you really see your value in your uh, professional work, uh, whether from thinking back to starting with a class like ours or just that you developed over time, do any really stand out to you uh, up until today? Yeah, absolutely. So a, a big part of my job um, is also teaching clinicians, physicians, researchers how to use AI. And these people tend to be generally a little bit older. Um, and AI is quite a new thing. So there's definitely a little bit of a barrier there as far as understanding how things work. Um, and actually, something that I've learned in writing class, but also something that I it really clicked for me when my therapist actually told me. Um, so 
just talking to her about, um, you know, communicating with my family, communicating with my husband. Um, and I, this is a very common idea in therapy is the use of I statements. So thinking about who you're, who you're talking to and like de-escalating somebody's reaction before they even react by saying like, I feel this way instead of saying you made me feel this way. Um, and for whatever reason, that always just has really, that has really stuck with me. And I feel like even in my work, I really think about like from a pathologist perspective, who's maybe been doing this for 30, 40 years and like, doesn't really know how AI works. Like, how am I going to have this conversation in a way that makes sense to them? And I think that extends far beyond just the workplace, like in my personal life as well. How do I talk to people to make sure that they understand it in their way and in a way in which that they are going to be receptive to me, not necessarily reactive. Um, And so that piece of, you know, remembering who your audience is and speaking specifically to that is, I think, the most by far valuable thing that I've I've learned. Yeah, that's that's so interesting and sort of validating to hear you say that because that's one of the first things I cover in my class. Uh, I don't know if I was at the time, but certainly now is this idea of and it it I, I don't know if I would say it shocks me, but it always still surprises me how many students freshmen I have or even older students who are taking my class for the first time the idea of analyzing a uh, an article in a newspaper and not just saying that this article is effective or ineffective but identifying that it may be effective to some readers but it may be ineffective to other yeah. readers and it may be somewhat effective in some ways to some readers and it may be not so effective <laughs> yeah. in other ways to other readers they're just like that's too that's too many dimensions for them yes but that's the reality of yeah how an audience is going to perceive it the audience isn't a monolith it's not one i mean in some cases you could theoretically write something so horrid that we would say all right most people are going to say this is trash but even then they would say it's trash for different reasons right um and and conversely you know if something was the most well-written thing ever but it's just interesting to me because we know this inherently i mean students uh, and just all of us right your favorite TV show, there's plenty of people who absolutely despise that TV show. Exactly. And sometimes it's for the same reasons that you love it. Sometimes it's for very different reasons. And I sort of explain that to them and they realize, oh yeah, that that makes sense. And it gives you so much more to consider. And sort of like you're saying, I think it really, the idea is that it helps build your worldview in terms of how you approach different situations. And, and I think that's such an underrated value in writing and communication is that, yeah, a lot of this is very tangibly geared towards different skills that you'll use academically and ultimately professionally, but personally as well in terms of your own sort of self-assessment and like you were sort of saying, um, how you navigate um, people that you may already know very well or certainly uh, people who you're just meeting, whether personally or again, professionally. It's such a, a useful sort of intuition to develop, if, if it can be called that, that it's a really, I think, a meaningful lesson that we do cover in our class, but it, it's not something that I think they even fu- fully realize right away. I, I think sometimes it takes them quite some time after they take the class to sort of reflect back. And I've had students tell me that over the years where they email me or they stop by my office. I had a student actually stop by my office um, right during finals week. She was graduating from grad school and she was kind of saying all of this, yeah. how, <laughs> you know, she was she missed our, our class because she felt like she had such an interesting found it helped her with an interesting foundation for those types of uh, sort of reflective perspective skills 
And my point was exactly what we've been saying, where, yeah, yeah that's sort of one of the qualitative ideas of why we, we do cover all of that. Um, and it's almost like when you look back at it, you, you're like, oh, wow, there was a lot that we accomplished in this class, even though it just feels like you wrote yeah. a couple of papers. <laughs> it's like, yeah, again, they're, they're sandboxes really to, you know, play in to try to build connections, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And like, I, I think... So a lot of a lot of things I'm thinking about after what you just said. Um, so one of the things being that, you know, when we think of like famous people or like really famous political leaders that have rallied all these people behind them, like they are appealing to the masses. And like what that means is they're able not that, you know, their agenda is something that everybody agrees with, because I think with a lot of, you know, situations that have led to tragedy, um, they, it's not that people agreed with their agenda, but they were just very persuasive and speaking to an audience that was able to easily relate and agree with them. So, you know, there can be great power in, in knowing who you're speaking to and how to speak to them. Um, and then also like a good way to, to think about it is, and I didn't realize this at the time, but I used to watch the show called Project Runway when I was younger and it was like a bunch of fashion designers making clothes. And one of the things that they always said to them was, oh, who's your girl? So who's the girl you're designing for? Who do you have in mind? And I was like, oh, I'm thinking of like a rich heiress, like living in the Hamptons and I'm <laughs> dressing her and blah, blah, blah. But I, I always think of that phrase for myself, especially when I'm writing something like, who's my girl? Who, who am I writing for? Who is the specific person that I have in mind that's going to understand this 100%? And I think that also helps you find your, your personal voice also, because then that kind of segues you into like, who am I? <laughs> and what is it that I'm trying to say? And who is it that I'm trying to talk to? Yeah, that's interesting to hear from a, a, a fiction writing perspective as well, because that's always an, a really interesting consideration that I think about, which is, well, who's actually going to read this? Who's actually going to be interested in it? Yeah. What identities are going to maybe connect with these characters in, in different ways? You know, that's a, a big way to connect with um, readers through characters that you develop and the stories that you tell maybe. Um, so it, it, it's not surprising to hear all of that because I think it, it does apply in all these, these other ways as yeah. well. Certainly. Um, it's really interesting to hear, but, um, yeah, um, I think that's everything that I had questions on. Did you have any other thoughts in terms of any other sort of uh, communication writing skills that you feel like, you know, um, moving forward maybe that are going to be a big part of the work that you do? Or is it just sort of a continuation of, you know, sort of where where you are right now with everything and you think like, I, I mean, as we were sort of saying, it's kind of difficult to predict where things go in any field, I yeah. think, relating to AI. But is do you have any other thoughts with that in terms of, you know, moving forward where you might see writing and communication with the work that you do? Um, I don't know if you see yourself still doing this exact type of work five years from now, for example, because something else might come up where you do the work that you do. And it's like, OK, now I'm focusing. Yeah, on this now. Yeah. Um, but do you have any thoughts along those lines, maybe? Yeah, I think as as far as anybody that's listening, um, I think a good way to think about it is really ask yourself, like, am I doing this using the help of AI, that is, mm -hmm. um, because I'm feeling lazy <laughs> or is it because it's going to help me um, or actually help me edit or is it going to, you know, introduce new ideas that maybe I hadn't thought of? 
And, and that's where you can hold yourself accountable and responsible. Um, do I think it's going to turn apocalyptic? No, but I think it, like we said earlier, it can be used, you know, irresponsibly if you are just, you know, not feeling like doing something and, you know, you're just like, let me throw it in chat GPT so I can be done with it fast. Um, so that's, that's definitely something to be mindful of. And then one thing, I actually have a question for you. Mm -hmm. So, um, I consider myself a pretty good writer. Um, but unfortunately I haven't had many opportunities to sit down and write, um, since, since I've graduated and been out of like school essentially. Um, and I know like journaling is a popular thing, but it feels a little silly <laughs> to like write to yourself every day. So how can you incorporate writing into your life and like allow yourself to think creatively in a day to day that's practical and doesn't feel silly. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Where to begin with that? <laughs> I'll try to keep this brief because yeah. <laughs> we've already talked about a lot, but it, it's a good, it's a good question. I think it's different for everybody. I, I think it's maybe a, a type of fallacy to say, Oh, this is the best way to do it. Right. Cause sort mm -hmm. of like you're saying, having a diary or a journal that works really well for a lot of people, but other people just really struggle to get into it for various reasons. Um, so I think that there are different things that you can do along those lines. One exercise that I tell uh, students, it's not a bad idea to consider, but I think it's interesting to consider in, in general is to um, take some time to just describe things and experiences. Don't even mm -hmm. necessarily think of it as, as a journal where you have to assign meaning to, but it was actually a sort of practice that uh, as, a, as a writer, well, I started doing it as a writer because I thought it would help my writing, but it really helped me just like think about stuff in, in a non sort of forcing way, which is it's hard to explain unless you actually try it. But basically what I mean is, for example, I would go on a run mm -hmm. and I would be running and then I would see a bird in a tree or something and I would stop. And I remember at the time I was crazy enough where I would have my notebook on me mm -hmm. in case I saw something to write it down. And I just spent I stopped for 10, 15 minutes and just really described the scene, mm -hmm. uh, the, the bird, the way that the sun was shining. And it sort of forces you, if you're just focusing on that one scene, to try to describe things in different ways. Like you can't just say, oh, the sun was shiny, right? Or the, right. the yellow sun was shining because it's like, well, yeah, the yellow sun is always shining. Yeah. It's not interesting, right? Yeah. What shade was it, right? What angle was it? What did the angle do to the shadows? Were there shadows? Were there shadows coming? So it's sort of... Um, was a really interesting exercise to just have uh, sort of de develop my mind to focus on the unique elements around me. And I really like that as a sort of just more so, I, I think it helped with my writing, but it just made me sort of, I think, more sort of, I don't know if focused or observant are the right words, but it, it felt like a very sort of uh, connective exercise to just the world around me almost. Uh, and I think by extension that could apply to anything. I think it's really good with, with nature, but it's good with like other scenes or experiences, you know, maybe just take time at lunch or in the evening, or again, if you're sitting on a subway or something, describe, like have a notebook, describe what's, what's going on around you and sort of why, because there is inherent meaning and reason and order, but also chaos and all of that. And you sort of start to break that down just by virtue of, um, isolating what stands out to you about it. So from a non-journaling perspective, I think something like that can be really helpful because in its sort of just premise, it sounds like maybe it's just observing the mundane, but I think it's quite the opposite actually. Um, so that's one exercise that I feel like, especially again, as I said, for 
uh, those who they're not so much into the journaling diary aspect, I think is really interesting. But it ultimately depends on why you you want to be doing writing. You know, if it's for just Again, that that's a good example because it can apply to if you're trying to do different types of writing professionally, but also just personally. And then if you are trying to do um, different types of professional writing, there's all sorts of other things that maybe you you could do um, as well. But that would be maybe my my main general advice. Yeah, I think that's great. I don't know advice. if that yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, that yeah. totally okay. makes sense. It seems like it would be <laughs> yeah. quite a meditative thing and like really immerse yourself yes. into your surroundings. Um, you know, we're all addicted yes. to TikTok these days and we could all yes. use a break. So yeah, yes. that, that makes sense. Um, one, one quick thing. Um, I will know when I do this, that this is something that nobody else is going to see. So then that almost feels in a way, I hate to use this word, but pointless. How do you mm-hmm. justify like literally, I think that's where my, my holdup is like, how do I justify mm-hmm. taking the time to write something down on paper, knowing that I'll probably never read it again, because I'll remember it. And nobody else is going to see it. So why am I doing it? You know what I mean? And I, I, I've had these conversations with friends, and it seems to be like a common, a common problem, <laughs> a common problem. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's a great question. Uh, you know, there's an interesting theory. I don't know if theory is the right word, but I've heard this from instructors. I haven't researched it myself, but apparently it used to be a, a, a practice, at least historically, where famous writers would actually transcribe works by other famous writers. Oh, okay. So you would have, I, I can't think of any names off the top of my head, but the idea is like, well, I want to write poetry like Walt Whitman, mm-hmm. right? So I'm going to open up a book of Walt Whitman's po- poems and then in a blank book, copy what he wrote. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you're sort of mimicking the action of whatever it was that inspired him to write that that work. Interesting. Um, and I've heard this in a couple of different instances. And to your point, that's entirely futile in terms of yeah, the finished yeah. product, right? Because you could just buy another Walt Whitman book. But it's the idea of the practice behind it. And, and the fact that like, these are the literal motions that you would have to go through, right, to, to come up with something like that. Or if you typed it, you transcribed it typing or something like that. Um, if it's any consolation as a fiction writer, probably, I don't know, 90% of the stuff I write, I never sees publication. Right. Um, so it's very much uh, I, I think it's sort of like anything. If you think about uh, professional athletes, you don't see nine, 90 percent of the work that they put in behind yes. the scenes. Right. You see the final yes. product. Um, they try different things that, you know, don't maybe work out in terms of their own um, you know, development, that sort of thing. So I, I think we inherently already do a lot of that in in different facets in, in society and in our lives. Um, and, and again, coming back to more specifically writing, I think the idea is more so that uh, sort of like I was saying with the example of kind of just observing things and and taking down those observations, what I always say is that what you really want to manifest from that is the internalization of that process where you sort of were able to, um, like I said, all of those observations I wrote down, I don't think I ever went back and read them. Uh, But I remember as I wrote them thinking, oh, this is a good way to describe this aspect of this moment. Mm. You know, this is something that the the nuance of why you chose to use these words and these phrases to um, elicit this focus is unique and meaningful and specific to what I observed here. So from a writer, a published writer perspective, that's very tangibly useful because I can draw upon maybe not those exact phrases, but the exact intuition that I developed through getting to those phrases later in my uh, in in other published works that have eventually become published, so I might not 
copy that exact same phrase, but the pathways that I've now developed to get to manifesting a phrase like that are now more common to me. They're more developed. And again, if you think about it from just the qualitative perspective of, well, I'm trying just to sort of observe things in a way that make me more observant of the world around me and more comfortable with the world around me. It's sort of, I, I think in theory should have a similar effect. Right. So I, I think there there is this uh, very tangible professional benefit maybe, but also sort of this qualitative uh, personalized one. Because like I said, I, I write stuff all the time that either A, never makes it to publication or B, I just never even read again. It's it's helping me to sort of develop the focus of these skills um, moving forward. So again, it depends on on what your exact focus is, but I think there's benefit regardless for those reasons. And, and like you said, it's the same issue I struggle with as a, as a professor where it's trying to make these skills clear where I'm like, yeah, you're not going to go on and yeah. write a rhetorical analysis paper again, but you're going to use these processes that you've developed through having to do this. And you'll use some of the skills, obviously, more tangible ones of analysis and picking information and quoting it, that sort of stuff, too. Uh, but I think it's really just the the qualification behind it that matters. Yeah, most. yeah, totally. I think I, I don't, you know, have a, a goal of doing anything with that writing per se. I think I just want to be more in tune with myself and my thoughts um, and writing seems like a, a great way to do that. And I think I also, you know, because there's a little bit of vanity in me and I think I am a good writer, I, I don't necessarily want to lose that skill. And I, I certainly see that it is being a lost, lost a little bit. Um, you know, my husband would ask me all the time to like proofread his things or like, what do you think about this? Or can you help me write this? And now he doesn't because he asked ChatGPT. So yeah, so oh, I would, yeah. I would like to indulge myself and, you know, uh, just keep myself in good practice. So yeah, I think that's great advice. So I'll definitely try it. Yeah. And, and let me know how that goes because I I'm always curious with different processes like that, what works for different people and sort of why, or you might discover something else starting out that way. And you're like, Oh, actually I decided to try to do this and it worked really well. So definitely keep me updated with that because my writer mind is always trying to gather more data. I'm like chat GPT myself where I'm just like more more input (laughs) must be able to compute more, become better writer. Um, But yeah. Yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. And I think the key with what you said is like, it's it's not necessarily, it doesn't need to be for an audience, you yes. know, like it, it can be just for yourself. And sometimes that's better is, is to write saying sort of, you know, screw everyone, I'm writing this because it matters to me. And sometimes that's right. really great writing. So and it takes the pressure off. <laughs> well, there's lots of pathways to get to great writing, for sure. There's there's not right. one pathway, which is what makes it challenging and complicated too. <laughs> you know, if there was one right, set exactly. method or formula, it would be easy, but. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's, that's everything. Um, thank you so much. This was great. Um, of course. Yeah. It was lovely chatting. Yeah. I feel like I, I learned a lot. I'm a little less scared of AI now, which is, which is good. We'll see next week. <laughs> I'm happy how I to feel. help. Yeah. We'll see next week how I feel. Um, yeah. I hope I don't have to eat my words. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Stays, well, I think we know, said good things about them. So when they do eventually yeah. overthrow us, maybe they'll, they'll source this podcast and say, all right, these are, you know, these, these guys, they, seem they can be spared. We'll use them as matrix batteries. They seem all right. You know, like no problem. But uh, yeah, here's hoping. Yeah. So thank you again, uh, Ariha for, for joining me. Uh, I hope the listeners learned some interesting insights as well. I know if you're a student listening to this, uh, you you better learn insights because this was good stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, so as I said at the beginning, we moving forward are going to be doing a lot more interviews. So hoping to have more of those soon. So if you like what you've heard here, you enjoyed it, just feel free to 
follow, subscribe wherever you're listening to this. You can listen to this podcast pretty much on every platform. We're on Spotify, Apple, uh, iTunes, whatever. I don't know all of them. I should know these by now, but we're on all of them. So give us a follow and you'll get updates when we have new episodes. And we hope to have them again, like I said, soon. So thank you again for joining me this week and hope to see you soon.